0: Thank you, Raul. Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Scott. I have a privilege of preaching to you this morning one of the seminal texts in the Christian faith, Romans 3. As we continue in this sermon series called The Way Forward, we are going to, week by week, be looking at chapter by chapter of Romans. This will take us right up to Advent, and we'll pause and study the book of Isaiah uh, during Advent, the Christmas season, and then we'll resume right where we left off in Romans, and it'll take us all the way to Lent, the season of Easter. So we believe that God will teach us as a church through the book of Romans, uh, in this time and place, a specific word that is the way forward. Let me say a prayer, and we'll uh, launch into our time. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your church and your people to gather to sing. And God, we turn our lives over to you. We, tr- we turn this church over to you in regards to location and where we're going. Father, um, we, we really, in this moment, we, we don't care about the building. We want to be people willing to hear you this morning, that our hearts would be open to what you want to say to us. Lord, we know there are many struggling even in this room this morning. Would your word be a light to them, be hope for them? Would you encourage them this morning? Would you convict some too as well, Lord, through Romans 3, that you've got something to say to us as a church, that the way forward is finding our path in you? In your name we pray, God. Amen. Romans 3 your title this morning is Sinking Not Sunk. Sinking Not Sunk. You may have not known this, but I used to be a fisherman in Canada. Did is any of this? Okay, probably haven't told you about it before, but... What we would do when we would salmon fish is we would fish the shoals close to shore. Like you could, boat goes down, you could swim to shore practically. Water is uh, about 48 degrees. They give you about 15 minutes before hypothermia sets in. But when we were halibut fishing, we would head to the deep waters of Queen Charlotte Strait. This is a calm day, this is the waters we halibut fish, and this is the land masses around, Vancouver Island on one side, mainland British Columbia on the other side. A good 30 to 45 to 60 minutes from shore in, in any direction, you would be out here jigging a rod in three to 500 feet uh, uh, depth, and sometimes in water that's uh, you know upwards of 1,000 feet. And because of the wide open spaces, and because of the depth of water, when the wind came up, you needed to run for land, because boats can and do go over there. It's inside passage, more sheltered than certainly other parts of the Pacific, still dangerous. So there was this time, we were jigging for halibut out here by ourselves, in a boat I was captaining, and not a boat, though I owned it, I wasn't that familiar with the systems, and we were in the deep water of Queen Charlotte Strait, and we were sinking we were sinking. I didn't know it, of course, at first, because we were, you know, I was the guide. We had four customers on board and whatever, and, and, and water started coming up through the floorboards before we realized that the water was at the bottom of our souls. And then as we were looking around for what's going on, I was trying to, you know, assure them nothing to worry about here, folks, nothing to worry about. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, the water's now at our ankles, not a problem. We have a bilge pump. Every boat does. Pull the cover. The bilge pump. The wires not working. That's above. Supersedes my experience to rewire the bilge pump at sea. Some of my guides could do it. I couldn't do it. No bilge pump. But where's the problem? The problem was the the the, the, uh, the gunnels had these these float valves that water's supposed to flow out of the decks. But somehow they had become jammed and water was flowing in where they were supposed to be flowing out. The water continues to rise. The customers are kind of making light of it. And then they're starting to get worried and climb up on, on, on seats and stuff. And then we said, let's do something. Let's do something. To which everyone starts, you know, grabbing to bale water. Like one person grabbed the bait bucket. Someone else grabbed bucket. Pretty soon two of the women up front started with coffee cups. You know, like, like this isn't helping. Each moment that goes on, my fear is rising. They say in the promotional materials of the, of the boat, these are unsinkable. I didn't want to test it this day, if you know what I mean. Like We would fill up with water, aluminum boat. I was pretty sure we weren't going to sink all the way, but out here in the middle of nowhere, I was thinking, oh, but then we'll be adrift, salt water over the batteries, will kill our radio, we'll kill our engines, and we are subject to any force that could take us down. I was freaking out. I called one of my buddies who co captain in the fleet, and he, he kind of knew everything about the ships. I said, our scuppers are plugged, water's coming up, the bilge pump is down, what do we do on the VHF radio? And he gave me advice that actually would be very, very instrumental. We were sinking, but we weren't sunk. I was able to reach out before the battery shut down, the radio shut down, and I look back on that moment, many times in my life, I'm like, man, things could have turned out differently that day. In Romans 3, Paul paints the picture for us as a church that this is our story. In the message paraphrase of Romans 3, Paul says, It's clear enough, isn't it? We're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everybody else. Our involvement with God's revelation doesn't put us right with God. What it does is force us to face our complicity in everyone else's sin. You can have the revelation that, that you're a sinner, but this doesn't put us right. We're in the same sinking boat, says Paul. We've got to free the sinking ship. We're sinking, church. We're not sunk. Paul wrote these words in the midst of a, a divided church, divided on all these different issues. The, the, the Jewish and Gentile church in Rome, 13 different house churches in the midst of empire. Empire. That that church could look around and see persecution and know that the world around them was sinking. They knew it was only the hope of the gospel that would give them hope. And yet we as American Christians are struggling for hopefulness right now. I said one senator last week in the Washington Post that we've hit our low point of American history. Uh, whether you're conservative or liberal, whether you're pro this or pro that, like you can see the conflict in the world. And Romans 3 comes through us like slicing through to say, it's not just them, it's you. It's me. This is my story. We're sinking. We're not sunk. And if we think we can just bail faster and, and try harder, we're missing the whole point of Romans. Paul says here in Romans 3, this is the definitive nature, like we are sinners, and so whether you question, like, well, how did we get here? And how do I get out of here? Do we just let the ship go down? Paul's saying that, that, that this is our story, to know that we're sinners. And before we can appropriate the hopefulness of the, of the rest of Romans, Paul says, I need you to know that this is your story. You are going down. I typically seem like I know Christians in two camps right now. We have Christians that don't feel like this is my story anymore. No, the sinfulness is for somebody else in a different party or a different group or a different perspective. No, I've been saved because I came to faith. I'm generally on the good side. I'm not sure Romans 3 even applies to me anymore, does it? And then there's these other Christians that I know and run with that are like, dude, you want to talk about sin? I live sin. Like, I know I know that this is my story. There's nothing you could tell me that I didn't think about on my way into this room this morning because I feel like a hypocrite. I'm so aware of my brokenness or the world's brokenness. Hope is utterly lost. Paul says, kill those two narratives' faith and find the way forward this morning that we as a church were sinking in the elements of my personal sin but we're not sunk because who Christ is. And so as we name the brokenness in ourself, not just intellect, intellectually, but actually, I'm a sinner, then we will hunger for the cure, the fix. And so here's our big idea this morning, that until we see our ship is sinking, we won't desire to know the fix. So as church, this is our story. We're sinking, but we're not sunk because Jesus bails us out. Let's look at two parts. We're going to look at the first 20 verses as kind of a courtroom scene. And then we'll, we'll close with the, verse 21 onward. But verse, uh, verses 1 through 20, this is kind of section 1 in your outline. This is the courtroom scene that we're guilty as charged. Much of Romans plays out like a legal proceeding, certainly this chapter. Righteousness is used seven times as we're trying to get an understanding of what is righteous, where can justice come from, and the law, which was the definitive nature of where righteousness would come from pre-Christ, the law, that terminology is used 74 times in Romans versus 47 times in the rest of the whole New Testament. So this idea of kind of a courtroom and Paul helping us understand of like how might we understand the justice that God wants to lay into our lives. Paul says this is where it all comes from. Romans 3 verses 9 through 12. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. We are guilty as charged. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. Ouch. And there is no one who does good, not even one. That's not just the old story. Paul is writing this to the gathered church to say, this is your story. This is. And if you're like me at all, when I get down the road of convicting other people of sin, it seems like God has a way of putting a mirror in front of my face to say, this is still my story. That I still wrestle with these elements of sin that want to entangle. Paul's saying it's because that if we're not constantly being justified, we're living into this, this worthiness that only God can bestow on us. But we are worthless without Christ. There is a song that we sing at Bethany North. It's a Bethel song. We're singing it to God. We sing, you are good good whoa i know i should try it for the worship team i'm working on it but you know it's like when you come to romans 3 it's like it's a different song i am bad bad whoa you know and if you walk out right now that's not what paul wants to do but we need to start there we need to start there that this is my story and yours and certainly right now with so much division in the church it's like well my bad yes a little bit but if we could be honest, could we be honest here? You know who's really bad? It's the conservatives that did this in the courts. It's the liberals that have missed God's greater understanding of Scripture. It's the people that are focused on justice at the expense of God's word. It's the people who are worried about God's word at the expense of God's justice. I mean, my sin, it's, it's there, but we can all define. I mean, real sin is those others, right? Right? No. Paul says, this is our story. And certainly as a church, we've got to get to these issues of connectivity with the modern world about, I mean, pick your issue. We found out this this week that by 2040, if you believe scientists, that the earth is going to raise 2.7 degrees by 2040 in our lifetimes. So what issue do we want to be engaged in? We would disagree Because for those of you like, oh, can I vote? Yeah, there's a certain issue the church should really get passionate about. But maybe one of the biggest issues affecting the church right now is our utter lack of hopefulness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we can read about rising temperatures in the environment and it will blow our minds. That we can grieve over what's going on for women in our country and we should. And yet in the midst of this we're called to proclaim God's power and hope. And when we as a church lose our hope, it means that we are taking our cues from society at large. Paul is writing this to a church under under the, the oppression of empire and saying... Yeah, there, there, there's hope that's going to be found in the gospel. Stay with me. But start with the fact that you are part of the problem. Message three. The message. Romans three, verse nine to ten. So where does that put us? Do we Jews get better breaks than others? Not really. Basically all of us. Insiders are out. Start in identical conditions, which is to say we start out at, as sinners. This is our story. And if you look there in your Bible, like verses 10 through 18 are a mashup of the whole Old Testament to say that if anyone's clinging to the old story, we're fallen, every one of us now. He quotes Psalm 14, 5, 140, 10, 36, Isaiah 59 to just basically all lay out. We've, we've missed it. There's a Jewish scholar who wrote a book called Repentance about the problem of sinfulness that is my problem and yours. He shared this in a podcast on being. He says, The problem of sin persists now. Whether we look at the private lives of individuals where parents still abandon and abuse children, the practices of corporations where corruption is rampant, or the conduct of nations where injustice and cover-ups are, are prevalent, the world is rife with sinful behavior. Clergy, too, have been caught up in scandal to a remarkable degree, as evidenced by the Roman Catholic priests found guilty of abuse, and Orthodox rabbis indicted for violating labor lies and and. Protestant pastors, this is all of our story, abusing illegal immigrants and participating in political cor- corruption. Everywhere we turn, he writes, it seems the moral fabric of our society is coming undone. And this is just commonplace sinfulness we encounter every day. Before we begin to contemplate the enormity of genocide in Rwanda and Darfur, the fact that we tolerate a world in which over a billion people lack clean drinking water. I do not mean to suggest that people are fundamentally more depraved today than they were in ages past. It's not true. In fact, any careful reading of history would like to reveal that people are prone to transgression in roughly equal degrees, in fairly comparable ways, irrespective of time period, culture, religious affiliation, or any other factor. This confirms what our religious and moral teachers have been telling us since they began reflecting on the human condition. Sinfulness has been and continues to be an irreducible part of our humanity, Until the messianic redemption arrives, until Christ arrives, we are all sinners to one degree or another. This is our story. Or as Paul says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And remember, church, he's writing to believers in Jesus. So this is very, just Psalm 36, I have a message of God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so when we forget that we're sinners and we stop repenting of our sin, we lose our fear of God. Well, I, I did that back at the, the camp, the, the, the upbringing. I'm, if I'm a Christian, aren't I saved fully by the freedom of Christ? We are, and says Paul, that the closer we are to the places of brokenness that exist in our lives, when we repent from those things and see ourselves enslaved in that story, we're closer to the freedom of God. So we don't want to be just totally enslaved by the old story. We don't want to be blind to the fact that we face brokenness still. We want to see that this is our story, that there is a disease that we suffer from. This is the courtroom moment where we're not on trial with God. We're on trial with ourselves. God is the judge. God isn't judging us of like, you did this bad thing. No, no, we're on trial for the sinfulness that exists in my life already in my heart, my propensity to serve myself, to turn a blind eye towards justice towards another, to to seek my own gain. Paul says, God's not the judge that, sh- that you're trying to kind of prosecute you. No, you're being prosecuted by yourself. This is the climax of the disease. This is our problem. Like we we look at you know like my bailing efforts, we're like. Gosh, if I could just bail faster or harder, Paul's like, this is the thing. Like, your efforts don't matter. It's pointless at a level. Like, well, I'm, I'm a really good bailer. I'm, I'm more holy than that guy <laughs> or her. Paul's like, it, it's it's worthless. And no amount of like, okay, well, I'll, I'll just try harder. Like, I was raised in the church. I know how this goes. I'll just try harder. I'll tend more things. I'll fix myself. I'll judge other people. I'll tape my hand with duct tape and I'll try harder somehow. Paul says all of these efforts are ridiculous because they fundamentally miss the point that you have sin in your life and God is incapable of dwelling in the midst of your sinful nature. He needs to be Fully expelled of sin in your life, in order for Him to dwell in you, and so our effort just gets really messy. It does, really, really messy. It's got to be different than this, says Paul. We're sinners. This is this is my story and yours. When I was in high school, uh, we like to we like we were punks. We had a lot of anger, and we we we. Uh, we did a lot of things that, that I wouldn't want my kids doing today. I'm not alone when I say that in this room. And after we graduated, we decided to, put, to play a prank on a teacher that we wanted to, to prank, that you know we were going to get back for our high school years or whatever. And so it's a long story, but a group of eight of us piled into a car to, to, to play a prank on this teacher, and it went horribly wrong. At the end of the night... All eight of us were sitting on a curb. We were being read our rights by a police officer. The teacher had his foot ran over by the car we were riding in, was laying on his back as an ambulance was called. His wife was screaming. His daughter was berserk. We were called into a court of law with very real charges being levied against us that potentially could have stayed on our records for the remainder of our days. Your honor, we said. It was only a prank. Your honor, it... He should have never had his foot that you're on. That we had all excuses. But when the judge looked down on us and said, you failed this man. You broke the law in how you treated him. And now you must sit under judgment. And our excuses were done. And we were very, very, very fortunate to walk out of that courtroom absolved of the misdemeanor charge that would have stayed with us or the felony charge or whatever, and to be given the, the the essential warning to never do anything violent like that again. It was a warning we never forgot. Paul says to the church, this is your story. You are sinners. Stop thinking that somehow taping up the holes in your life can somehow fill you up with god's presence this is the second part of our outline where christ comes barging in god's powerful action to reorder history through the court of law there's the two most significant words in scripture two most significant words in scripture some of them might be right here in verse 21 look at verse 21 these two words but now but now says paul Christ comes rushing in. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. But now, like you were totally under the judgment from your sinful actions. But now, there's a turning point. Paul has spent chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 saying, stop looking into the world to find brokenness. Find it in yourself. But he gets to verse 21. He says, but now, Jesus comes walking in. And says that there is a new story, and this is the entirety of the gospel message, really from 21 to the end of chapter 3. But now, Christ comes walking, and look at verse 23 and 24 of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. We get kind of these powerhouse theological words, propitiation, redemption, grace, justification. It's all there. I'm going to just lift up two for you, though, in verse 24. The two words in verse 24 I want to key into is is justified and redemption. That we've been justified. Look what Paul says there in verse 24. All are justified. That we have no excuse other than God's covering of us. The word justified is the same root word as righteousness. It's decao. It means to cover them over with goodness. For not them their sinfulness to be so covered over with God's goodness, they become freed in that way. Verse, verse 24, that, that we have the righteousness of God because we've been justified. We've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. Redemption, Paul was using that word into, in such a setting as Rome that was totally about slave traders. When, when slave traders would buy back, a, a, a person would buy back a, another human from the slave traders, they would be redeemed. So Paul is saying to the church, you are no longer slaves. You have been covered over with the goodness of God. This is what justification means. This is the goodness of verse 24. When we see our brokenness, when we recognize we're, we're sinking but not sunk, we hunger for Christ's power in us. It says, one scholar about justification. Justification is God's saving activity on behalf of guilty sinners, whereby he goes forth in power to free and deliver them in present time from judgment by his grace to declare a new reality to exist, to give them a gift of righteousness and transform and empower them so that they can act to become by the power of the Holy Spirit what they are in the new reality. The power of the Spirit, what they are in the new reality. And we want the new reality. We want the spirit. We're hungry for the power. It's all a gift. That Jesus saving work in our life brings the redemption and the justification. But by how? Through grace. Through, through grace. It's a word that, that we just kind of we don't even know how to, to apprehend anymore. All are justified freely by how in verse 24? By his grace. By his Greek is charis, a free and unmerited affection of the Father. Grace is more than just an attitude that he has for us. It's an enablement to live in the new relationship. It is a gift. As a message paraphrased from these same verses, but in our time something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened, the God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. There is no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restores us to where we always wanted to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. The gift Of life in Christ. That all of our striving, all of our sinfulness at the end of the day leaves us utterly hopeful that the one thing we can do is receive the gift of Jesus Christ. That our faith becomes the the receptacle for us to receive his spirit and power. Now, why does this matter? Because we use words like grace and we use words like faith still as if something that we might achieve on our own. But Paul is setting up the argument in Romans 3 that even faith is not achievable. Even faith is not measurable by your efforts. Even faith is a gift from Jesus to you. Receive the new life, says Jesus. The faith that will change you is not a matter of more striving and more judgment. It's this gift I want to see you receive. This is the faith, the acceptance and recognition that my life without Christ utterly worthless even today. Jesus, today give me more faith to receive more of your grace. Our faith becomes the receptacle because our faith is what sets us free from striving and judging and being blind towards our sinfulness. Our faith allows us to see ourselves, each other, in God's bigger story. I knew this prisoner of war. He lived on the island in Canada where we used to work. And and he was the third longest serving prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton. His name was Spike. He, He was a prisoner of war for some ungodly amount of years, something like seven. He was set free, but he was never really free. Like Spike left the Hanoi Hilton. He moved to Canada, but he was plagued by what he suffered the rest of his days. Because for a lot of us, it's like, well, yeah, I'm free, but I'm not really free to live into the new life. This man struggled for what he'd suffered. This isn't the freedom that Paul's talking about in being redeemed by sin. That the, the, the grace, the new life, the faith that we're given, that, that God wants to set us truly free. Look at verse 26. How did he do this? He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just as, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now this is interesting. Because if you're looking at your Bibles, verse 24, justified, past tense, verse 26, justifies in the, in the present active indicative. This is where in the Greek language they had different ways to use different words that matter a great deal. Because what Paul is saying, that Christ demonstrated his righteousness as one that just, and one who continues to justify. The justifying continues. It continues. Now this is good news for your unsaved neighbor, Bob. We know him, right? He's probably watching the Hawks right now. Sinner. Like, this this is a good word for Bob. You can go home and tell Bob. He wants to justify you still. But guess what? You are Bob, and I am too. Because the saving, justifying work of God wants to change us, needs to change us, over and over and over again. this justifying, in verse 26, present, active, indicative, it doesn't end. That the faith in in Jesus will continue to change us, to justify us over and over. And how can we repay that? Will we claim freedom from sin ultimately? No. Because Paul will say here in Romans, we need to constantly be aware of the sin that wants to entangle, entangle us. Do we just judge others of their sin? No, that's not where we start. We claim the status of sinner sinking and the reality of new life in Christ that we receive in faith, not sunk. I'm sinking Jesus, but not sunk, again and again and again and again. And this is where he takes us at the end of Romans 3. Look at verse 28 through 30. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he, is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify, there it is again, the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through the same faith. And so the cure to the sinking ship is to be filled with the spirit of living God through faith. This is the message of Romans 3, where Paul says, you are the sinking ship. You are. And there is a rising sea of sin that will entangle you. But it's not about just getting the plug right or bailing faster. It's receiving the new life in Christ through faith. And if you deny it, church, if we deny that this is still our story, we become cut off from more transformation. We're like, oh, you know, that's not really present to me. I can just see the sin in others. Paul's saying, get eyes for where you're still sinking. And remember, there's wholeness available by faith. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 12. We don't cling to sin. We're constantly trying to move from places of sin to places of hope. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So the power of Christ may rest on me. Don't miss the power. Does anybody want more power this morning? Anybody? Okay, there's three, four, five, more power. Okay, do we want more power of the faith? Where does the power come from? It's unleashing more faith in God. Well, faith is not a static thing. Then Then we just say, I have faith and it lives there. It's a dynamic process. Lord Jesus, release more faith in me because those who are forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven little, love little. This was a constant source of irritation for Jesus. So if you forget your sinfulness, you will forget the glory of God's grace. And so we're called to be people of repentance. We're called to say, I failed you, my friend, my spouse, my roommate. Like yesterday, today, I sinned. Like we don't want to be entangled by the old story. We have to kill these narratives. that want to keep our brokenness enslaved inside of us. And be moving into this place of wholeness where there's more faith available. We're not clinging to our holiness, we're clinging to God's faithfulness. Because when we've been forgiven much, we love much. That's what Jesus told Simon when the woman anointed him with her tears, the sinful woman. This is from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, Simon. You didn't give me any water for my feet. She wept my feet with her tears. She wept them with her hair. You do not give me a kiss. This woman from time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You do not put oil on my head. She's, she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven and her great love has been shown. But whoever's been forgiven little loves little. And so if people of God, like, yes, we'll rally around the next issue outside the church, but we start here. This is my story. I am a sinner, saved by the grace of Christ, the free gift. I am sinking, but not sunk. This power that can only come from one place, from more faith in Jesus. And that sinking boat, when I got a hold of my buddy... Like the VHF wasn't dead. The water's now, you know, mid Like Again, we're probably not going to sink. I don't really want to find out. I'm very, very scared. We're 30 minutes from the nearest vessel. I feel like we're going to die. And he says, there's only one way out of this. What can it be? Like, how can I fix the bilge trump, fix the scupper, bail? I, 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 like, what small effort can I do? He says, there's only one way out. You've got to accelerate to get on top of the waves. I said, you're wrong. That can't work. I, I, I revved the engine. We punched it to like 2,000 RPM. And we went down. There was thousands of pounds of water in the boat. We literally went under the wave. More water came in. We're now, a woman screamed, ah! I'm on the radio. You're wrong. You don't accelerate into this. You deny it. You, you, you try to fight the forces of sinfulness and water coming in your boat. He said, Accelerate. I went to 4,000, more water in the front. You're wrong again, accelerate. Only when you put the engine all the way pegged to 6,000 RPM and the the boat surged underwater, but then the forcefulness of the engine drove the boat on top of the waves and literally it took 15 minutes for the gunnels to be empty of water. What's the point the only way to deal with your sin is not to just give it a little bit and call it good, but is to come to places of saying, I am a sinner saved by your grace, Jesus. I'm tired of running from it. and I'm tired of trying to cover it up or trying so hard on my faith. Lord Jesus, I give you my whole life. Will you give me your whole faith? And when this becomes our narrative, we regain our truth-telling aspect and culture we become the city on the hill because we're living different not perfectly but aware of brokenness not covering it up and just isolating and blaming others accelerate into it and know that you're sinking but not suck the saving work of god to give you new life this is our testimony greater faith recognizing the brokenness that wants to entangle us, saying, Satan, I'm not going to allow you to keep me trapped in that anymore. Give me a new faith and a bigger story for God's glory in this city. And when we do, church, when we do, now we've got something to say about any and all of the issues that are so prevalent, but we've got to start first from Romans 3. But now, new story, big faith. ...in our lives. Let me say a prayer for us now. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning as your people. And we pray now, God, that you would give us a faith to help us worship you... ...in the midst of all the difficulties in our society and all the sin in our own lives. God, would your faith live in us? We receive it now like a gift. Would you, would you pour your gift into our life that our faith would increase? That we would have an understanding that you continue to justify and set us right... And Lord God, as we identify the brokenness and and no longer allow it to enslave us, may you set us free to follow you. Lord God, give us a bigger and bigger faith that we're sinking but not sunk. We're people of your story, your glory, your power, your passion. This is where the church becomes great again. We're no longer taking our cues by by the dissonance in the world and in the church. We're reclaiming the narrative, God, of being people that can worship you. Big faith in the midst of every difficulty. Give us more faith this morning. We beg, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Will you stand with us as we close in song?